So last week in Mark's Gospel, uh, we encountered Jesus answering questions about taxes. Well, you, you all did. I wasn't here. Uh, I assume everything went to plan. <laughs> I, I felt threatened that I was leaving, and, and you all acted like I was the cat that was away. <laughs> it seemed that Jesus' questions were, the, the questioners of Jesus were poised to spring a trap. Because, well, you can talk a lot of kind of big insurrection style talk, but when you start to talk about messing with Caesar's money, things escalate pretty fast. Jesus asked for a coin to make his point, and it, it looked something like this with Tiberius's head on it. I can see him slap this coin on his palm kind of like a high-stakes game of heads and tails, you know? And he shows the emperor's image stamped on it. Heads. They gasp. This is all very high drama. Jesus points to Caesar and he shrugs, maybe sadly. Give to Caesar what has his image stamped on it. I wonder when I read that, if there's some kind of distant echo of the Psalms that, that mock the idols who pretend to be Yahweh. Like Psalm 115 says, their idols are just silver and gold, things made by human hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. They can't even make a noise in their throats. Let the people who made these idols and all who trust in them be just like them. Meanwhile, he looks up into the faces of his accusers. He looks into the faces of those gathered around to listen. He looks into the faces of those who might not yet have had their mind quite made up about how legit Jesus really was. He looks into the faces of his disciples. And he issues one of the, one of the deepest, most intense calls wrapped in maybe one of the most subtle little phrases. Give to God what is God's. I think what he means is Look in the mirror and see the very image of God stamped on you and give it to God. Give all of it to God. Quit worrying about metal currency and these kind of bushly tricks. Quit worrying about phony sovereigns and, and sandcastle kingdoms and give yourself a living sacrifice over to this king, this kingdom. And when you do this, you are not far from God's kingdom. This week, Jesus continues to answer questions. He continues to evade the simple answers or the simple binaries that, that threaten to discredit his mission. John <coughs> will come up um, and read from Mark 12. I originally tried to get Molly to read because this text talks a lot about legal experts, and she's the legal expert that I know uh, in the crowd. Come on up. 
Mark 12, 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which was the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, of course, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They, lock, they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at our banquets. They devour widows' houses in for, for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. We've been learning a couple things um, from this current narrative lectionary cycle in Mark's Gospel. First, that Jesus' ministry seems to grapple with money at almost every turn. I'm struck with how many times money comes up. From the rich man who leaves Jesus saddened by his camel-based problem, <coughs> to the presence of a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, to the crowd's question about Jesus' tax plan last week, to today's passage about a widow's two mites. All of these stories are, of course, about more than money, but I don't think they're about less. Secondly, things we learned from this, this cycle of passages, in the coincidence of these passages with our current political cycle, that Jesus probably wouldn't make a very good 21st century American politician. I just don't think it would work. I don't think he'd get the caucus votes. If you watch any of these debates, you can almost see the parallel with the gotcha questions asked of Jesus. In our passage today, it follows a question on that long, hot button topic of marriage. A Torah expert asked him to to boil the ocean of God's word and instruction to God's people into the thimble of one commandment of commandments. 
one thing to keep. And Jesus responds correctly with this very important Jewish prayer, the Shema, that's something um, a, a practicing, observant Jew would, would say several times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This was the most important phrase in the life of a devout Jew, because it aligns the wholeness of God, the oneness, the wholeness of God, with the wholeness of someone before God. Compared to Israel's neighbors, their polytheistic or their pantheistic neighbors who worship whichever God and however many gods they well please, Israel was devoted to Yahweh. This monotheism that they might have, that there is but one God worth calling, one God even worth calling God, that, that's, that's an expansive claim. That's an all-encompassing claim for them to make. That single concept begs the question that it's also this one God that's responsible for everything there is. This is the one good God of creation. Implicit is that creation came about by the outpouring of that one God's grace and love. Not out of conflict, not out of need, not out of lack, but out of abundance. This claim that there's one God, it also implicitly says that this is the one God who knows and who calls Israel. It's also the claim that this is the one God who will sum all things up in the end, who will make things right, who will fight for his loved ones and win. To love and worship the one God means that the end of the story is in God's hands. And that he'll hold those accountable who've sinned, who've disobeyed, who've marred God's good creation, who have been unjust, that it's by God's hand and not any human hand that ultimate salvation will come. The redemption of our bodies, justice and peace. Even those who don't know God will eventually see God for who God is. Because of their belief in this God who creates, this God who redeems, not just in theory but in time and space, in their experiences, in, in their history, Israel must respond appropriately. Their one God is responsible for everything, from the beginning all the way to the end, and begs the response from his people for everything in the middle. The question is not... Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Israel... If she's responsible for what's in the middle, she must give her whole self to this whole God. God's grace requires that kind of covenant. All for all. All of God for all of God's people's heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of our worship. And worship is one of those things. It's one of those things that we do whether we like it or not. 
The question is not whether we're worshiping, but who or what or how we're worshiping. Is it good worship? Is it the right worship? What vision of the good life are we aimed towards? What, what, do we, what do we think when we don't know that we're thinking? Or what do we hope for when we're not even trying or when we don't think anyone's looking? Who are we serving? Which kingdom are we counting ourselves apart? I don't think it's that it's coincidental that this famous prayer to God's people is a hearing prayer. Shema means hear. It's a command. Hear, O Israel. I don't think it's coincidental that it's a hearing prayer rather than a seeing prayer, or a tasting prayer, or a touching prayer. The call God issues to God's people is hardly one we can avoid unless you're my kids. They seem to be able to avoid hearing me. Um, but when God calls us, we don't have the excuse of having blinked. We don't have ear lids, right? Like, this call goes out from God and it won't return void. We don't have the excuse of having not tasted it yet or having not touched it yet. Israel must not just hear passively, but they have to lean in and listen. They have to get involved with the God who has gotten involved with them. And it's this God involvement that then leads Jesus to the next part of his answer. So he's answered the first part. The Shema is, is number one. And then he goes on and says, and also love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and I think for him that's, that's one A. It's a logical outcome that giving your all to God, even if you do it imperfectly, but hopefully if you do it repeatedly, will actually make you better at giving yourself away to your neighbor. Like this is, when, when you hear all these like atheist debates, that's normally, that's normally the complaint of, of organized religion, right? Is that worshiping God makes people either dumb and irrelevant or makes them, like, if they're really serious about it, dangerous, right? So often we miss the, the crucial and the radical core of worshiping God, worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and Jesus, is that our spirituality is, is less about building ourselves up. It's... it's it's less of a project or an achievement or an attainment. Several of the, you in this room are paying thousands of dollars to master divinity, you know. But the radical core of our faith is in learning and practicing. And practice makes perfect. Giving ourselves away to God. And in turn, giving ourselves to others. And we don't really get to pick those others, right? These are others who hurt us, who disagree with us. These are others who completely misunderstand us or abandon us. These are others who take advantage of us, others who, who threaten us. They're others who don't look like us or sound like us or like the same things as us. These are others who are hopeless 
and helpless. These are others who are poor and who are hungry. Or there could be others who don't even know about their own poverty or how empty their lives are. My four-year-old, Noah, many of you know, she, four-year-olds are really good theologians. And she frequently and often manipulatively um, reminds me, Dad, God is more important than things, she says. And then other times she says, Dad, people are more important than things, right? And I think this, for her, maybe it's, it's, at some point it will become problematic that she interchanges those things, but I think she's got this <laughs> link, right? Like, she, she understands that, that, yes, God is more important than things, and that somehow that's related to the fact that people are also more important than things, and that the two are somehow connected. Loving God demands that we love people. It demands that we empty the pockets of our lives and let him spend us how he might. The, quote, legal expert, the expert of the, the Jewish law, he rightly considers that Jesus' answer, while completely orthodox in his day, has, a, has threatening kind of consequences to the prevailing wisdom that uh, what was most important to God in worship was sacrifices and reparations made for God's people as they strayed from God's plans. He says, like, these laws that you said are um, greater and more important than temple sacrifices as they stand in the shadow of the temple. And Joe Laudrina is going to talk more about that. I farmed that passage out to him uh, conveniently next week. But the great thing about this interaction is that the thing that they're afraid of, that Jesus is maybe swamping everything they know about pleasing and relating to God, restoring covenant with God, they're afraid that he's saying um, that none of this stuff is all that necessary anymore. But in actuality, he's setting something up even more radical. He's making claims that his coming sacrifice will be the sacrifice that matters. That, that his very life will be the touch point between God and humanity. Not the temple any, any longer. And that if you want to see heart love, mind love, soul and strength love of God played out, you, you don't need to look to temple sacrifices. You need to look to Jesus. You need to look to the cross. If you want to see what loving your neighbor as yourself looks like, whether that neighbor is family or enemy or friend or foe, look to Jesus. Look to the cross. So what does this mean for us? Where does this hit the ground in our lives? How does this commandment of commandments operate to, to make us too not far from God's kingdom? 
Well, for one, I think all of this whole love happens in small, gradual ways. When we look at Jesus, in Philippians 2 reminds us, took the form of a servant and humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. We see someone whose life exhibited a whole pattern of knowing and following God. Small, incremental choices, a pattern of responding to God with everything. In a disciplined prayer life, in a rigorous examining of the prevailing thought patterns of his time, of spending himself consistently for those around him. That way, when it came time for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem, for Jesus' trial and his execution on the cross, for this greatest act of God and human love showing the heart of the Father for creation, Jesus was able to do it. He cried out and sweated blood in the garden on the way to it, but he was able to do it. What I mean is this sort of wholeheartedness, it's a lifelong project, and I hope that's not intimidating, but if you don't know that, <laughs> welcome to reality, welcome to discipleship. It's a lifelong project where we, we join with Jesus, we follow Jesus, even into those seemingly insignificant moments of our lives. We ask Him to teach us. We ask Him to, to train us. We ask Him to renew our minds for this journey. If you're new to following Jesus, or you want to start following Jesus, prepare for a lifelong journey. If you've been following Jesus for a long time and you're starting to feel bored about it, I think that happens. Open up all the, the tiny crevices of your life to God. I think so many people outside of the faith, and even some who have faith in Jesus miss out on this and dismiss faith as, as woefully irrelevant to like real life. Or, or else we, we seek forms of worship, Christian or otherwise, that, that give us thrills, like consistent thrills to keep us interested. Doesn't seem like either of these is very descriptive of the vibrant and challenging life of discipleship offered by Jesus. Every turn, every interaction in our lives is a, is a chance to love the Lord your God and love others. Every chaotic moment, parents with your kids, is a chance to teach and to learn how to love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Every, every testy encounter with a, a co-worker or a student, that, that student lecture that always asks the question, you know, that's a chance to, to cultivate this kind of patience and these kind of Jesus eyes. Every, it, it might sound dumb, but every time you get frustrated in your car driving, 
because someone cuts you off. That is a chance. Every, every one that makes you feel dumb, that happens a little bit, I've been told in school, um, that's a chance. Every time you, you have a, an argument, even if it's a minor argument with your spouse, that's a chance to learn this sort of giving yourself away. The life Jesus lived and the life that he gives us is one of learning to focus on God. And, well, focus takes attention. It takes practice. We see this impulse in our passage. Those who knew the law best, what God demands of his would-be followers, are the ones walking around looking for prestige. Long, flowy robes, I love that. For ones who have so drastically disconnected their piety with their ethics, the way they worship and the way they live, that they trample on the most vulnerable in their midst. For them, love God is capitalized, and love neighbor is virtually non-existent. But give them credit. They seem to have a pretty deep spiritual experience. I mean, they, they pray long, eloquent prayers. I'm sure their books and their podcasts chart well. By the way, I'm always really anxious when we get to passages like this that when we that I have to preach before the prayers of people and y'all won't pray because you, you don't want to be like that person praying eloquent prayers. By all means, pray prayers. There are also folks giving quite a bit and making a big show out of it. Like, I wonder if they, they just love the sound of their, their currency hitting the bottom of that box, you know? I can imagine that this arrangement suited almost everybody, at least those who mattered. I mean, they got to feel like they were doing significant spiritual work. And God must be pleased with them. The temple priests were probably pleased with them, right? Seeing their, their coins hitting the collection plate may have sounded, though, like the, the clanging gongs and cymbals of Paul's letter to Corinth. Because right then, Jesus looked up at one of those cheated widows doing the real, powerful, spiritual work of dropping a couple pennies in the basket. I mean, come on, Jesus. Like, this is crazy, right? But she was actually giving her all. It didn't seem like much, but she dropped her last two coins and which, didn't, which she didn't have to spare. The simple, this simple act was a, was a signal and a, and a practice of a whole love of God. When her husband was around, she might have had more. But the fact that her life was ruined by others taking advantage of her didn't cause her shame, or if it did cause her shame, it didn't keep her from acting. She didn't keep looking backwards. She didn't have to struggle with the impulse to posture and show off, because really she didn't have a whole lot to show off. Just a couple of drops in the bucket. A couple of drops that represented her sustenance, her life. Maybe those coins really did represent her all. 
In the widow's actions, I'm reminded of Annie Dillard's risky instruction for writers. Annie Dillard was a Christian writer, and she, she uh, talks to writers. And this is about writing, but I think it's about everything. She says, spend it all. Shoot it, play it, lose it all, right away, every time. Do not hoard what seems good for a later place. Give it, give it all, give it now. The impulse to save something good for a better place later is a signal to spend it now. Something more will arise for later, something better. These things will fill from behind, from beneath, like water. Similarly, the impulse to keep to yourself what you have learned is not only shameful, it's destructive. Anything you do not give freely and abundantly becomes lost to you. You open your safe and find ashes. Following Jesus, the kingdom of God isn't witnessed to or built by the other people that Jesus is, it, it has in his sight. Not witnessed to or built by bombastic words, even true ones, or remarkable deeds, or crazy generosity, but by the ability to perceive and to receive these, these small, generous, capacious places where grace is operating, where allness is present. Sometimes allness is present in really small bits. We too are not far from the kingdom when we share the widow's commitment to give to God what is God's. That is all of it. All of us. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. All we have, even when it hurts, even when we don't know where more might come from. Isn't that the hardest thing? These sort of Seemingly small and insignificant acts subtly and slowly start to wear grooves in us. You string them together and it becomes something different. Fruit of the Spirit starts sprouting up in season. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of a sudden those big things that seem so daunting and impossible become possible. The person you're supposed to let come live with you for a season, that becomes possible because it has this <coughs> build-up behind it of preparation, of character making a virtue. The job that doesn't pay a whole lot, but it seems to be the one that God's calling you to, becomes possible. The child that you're called to adopt, for the church that you're called to plant, for the mission that you're called to serve, the vocation of singleness, the neighborhood that you're supposed to invest in long term with your time and your prayer and your life, that sickness that you've come down with or someone close to you, the possessions that you're called to give away, the very life that you're supposed to lay down, the 
faithful response in these big things so often requires a life that has learned how to faithfully respond in little things. Just tiny, stupid, small things. As we follow Jesus, we realize that the road to the cross, capital C, is paved with hundreds and thousands of tiny little crosses along the way. That loving the Lord our God with our all means even and especially all the little things. I think it's strange that kind of re-narrates Jesus' passion in Mark um, in Mark's prolonged passion narrative. I don't think it makes it at all easier for Jesus to take that cross but as the picture develops, we start to see that Jesus' life was taking a cross shape well before he ever got hung up on a cross. The cross is not only the logical conclusion to the kingdom revolution against empire that Jesus was leading. It was not only the, the site of salvation that would undo sin and death for us, but it's the goal of a truly human life. Lived with whole heart, soul, and mind, and strength aimed at God for the sake of others. I think that's our invitation this Lenten season from Jesus. This is the invitation that he makes to those who would be his disciples. Those who are not far from God's kingdom take up our crosses and to follow Him. Can you pray with me? Father, you ask so much of us. Nothing less than our all. Our hearts in everything we love and everything we value, our minds, all the ways that we try to make sense and calculate and navigate our lives, our souls, the very life within us, and our strength, what our hands are put to our work and our vocation. You ask all of that. Sometimes it seems like too much. But you give us your all. You're the one God who made us and who will redeem us, who made the whole world and will remake this whole world into your new creation. Father, we thank you for calling us. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, imaginations to conceive. Give us gratitude and give us generosity. 
bring us near to this kingdom that you've begun in the life and death and resurrection of your son Jesus. Make us into the people who will follow him in the big, daunting, seemingly crushing crosses of our lives, but also in the, in the small things that will fly right by us if we're not careful, Lord. By your Spirit, give us, give us wisdom, give us insight, renew us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.